1: You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get
0: ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So let's start out by just saying this. You really need to go to wealthformula.com. There is a lot of stuff on there, lots of downloads. And you know what? It's also a brand new website, so it looks really cool. So check that out. You can get a free copy of Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which is my Amazon Number one best-selling book. You can get it for free. Uh, You can also use this cool new software that we have called SpeakPipe. What SpeakPipe does is it lets you ask questions. And what we're going to do with those is we're going to play them on an upcoming Ask Buck show. So make sure to get on the site and go record your question. If you want to say who you are, your name, let me know if you want it announced or not. Or if you want to stay anonymous, you can do that as well. But don't be shy. We're all friends here. Also, I wanted to um, mention to you that, again, George Newberry's boot Bootcamp is coming up in April 18th and the 19th of this year. You can go to wealthformula.com and get a $200 coupon uh, by going to wealthformula.com and simply clicking on the icon for Notebuyer Bootcamp. Now, it's April 18th and 19th in Chicago, and I will be there uh, this is a um, you know a panel of experts. Uh, there's two days of intensive courses in this area. And I know a number of you have been interested in that. So this should be exciting. I'll be there. I'm going to be a panelist. I'm also going to try to make sure to have a Wealth Formula specific event. So if you're going, also make sure you let me know, right? So I can start to get a little bit of a headcount on that. Again, that's April 18th and 19th. Now, As far as today's show goes, let me ask you this question. Are you a great multitasker? And if you answered yes, are you sure about that? After all, it's impossible to think about two different things simultaneously, isn't it? Just try. Try doing it now. Can you think and then think about something else at the same time? No, you you just can't do it, right? So what does it mean to be a multitasker if you can't think about two things at the same time? Well, most people think about it simply loosely defined as sort of being able to do a bunch of stuff at the same time. But for those of us who get a lot of stuff done at once, are we really multitasking or are we just good at managing our time? I mean, I have to tell you that I have always fancied myself a great multitasker as well. I've worn sort of the badge of honor, had a lot of pride, called myself a multitasker. And in retrospect, though, I'm not really at my best when I multitask because really when I'm at my best, I'm, I'm serial tasking, right? I'm doing one thing after another. I'm doing it rapid fire, but I'm getting something done. And in recent years, uh, I started realizing that the idea of multitasking is actually really efficient and it really seems to slow me down. Let's just use an example Right. I mean, how many times have you been working on something and then all of a sudden the phone rings or somehow your your attention gets shifted over to something else? And then you try to come back to the original project, you know, all within a few minutes. It's not that easy. Right. You kind of have to get back in the groove. So do you not think that you're losing some efficiency when you transition like that from one task to the other? Of course you are. Right. It is really inefficient and you're losing precious time and energy. And in fact, you know what? I have come to hate the idea of multitasking because frankly, you know, times get really busy and I find myself doing it all the time. And then people are calling and, you know, I'm getting emails and, and I, I can't seem to get a single thing done. Right. And so not only does it make you less efficient in general, but it also uh, creates a sort of brain flow that's not really a good, efficient, you know, space to be in. It's what the Zen Buddhists call monkey mind. I like this term, monkey mind. It's the tendency of your thoughts in your head to sort of fling around like drunken monkeys, jumping up and down and chattering nonstop. So again, do you really think that's a good psychological state to be in? I mean, I don't. Not only is it not good for getting anything done, but man, I come out real cranky for the rest of the day after that if uh, if that's the way it's been. So anyway, I re- recently I read this book from a guy by the name of Jay Papasan who co-wrote uh, uh, this book with, uh, this and many other books with Gary Keller of Keller Williams fame. It's called The One Thing. And uh, this book really crystallized for me what I had been thinking and sort of suspected all along that it multitasking in fact is not good in fact it's actually a consequence of simply not really understanding in the first place what needs to get done what are priorities right multitasking really is just a band-aid for poor time management skills and if you want to underachieve in life i will tell you just keep trying to multitask now don't get me wrong You know what? I understand that you got to try to get a lot of things done at the same time. There's certainly ways of getting multiple things done in short periods of time that are done in much more productive ways than by simply shifting your thoughts one place to another, rapid fire, uh, and ending up in monkey mind territory. So the one thing for me was one of the best books I read all last year because it defines... What creates that increased level of productivity in a way that I have not necessarily, I certainly haven't really seen this captured all in in a single text. And that's what I think the genius behind this book really is. So when we come back, we will talk to author Jay Poppison about this book and more. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Jay Poppinson. Now, he is the number one bestselling author, along with Gary Keller, of The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, and one of my most recent favorites, The One Thing. Uh, the books he's helped craft have collectively sold over 8 million copies. And uh, his most recent work, uh, as I mentioned with Gary Keller, The One Thing, has sold over a million copies worldwide and garnered more than 300 appearances on national bestseller lists, including the number one spot on The Wall Street Journal's hardcover business list. Jay, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Buck. I'm happy to be here.
0: Awesome. So what I wanted to talk to you about, because this is just a fantastic book, The One Thing, I really wanted to focus on that. And I uh, just want to kind of start out. I mean, you have written a number of w- books with Gary Keller, and a lot of them are, you know, the 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 ones that are probably known most to our listeners are the ones about real estate. How did the one thing come up? What was that? What was the motivation for writing this book?
1: Well, it um, I told this story a couple of times, not a lot, but it, it it showed up when I was at that time running the university for our company. And we pride ourselves on our education here. And I was writing uh, a course with some course writers on kind of growing your business big enough to earn having your first assistant, right? Going from wherever you were to 36 transactions was Mm -hmm. kind of the formula we were playing with. And it was really straightforward, kind of hard-hitting, and and all the things we wanted to be. But Gary's like, you know what? I just want to give this some pizzazz. Can I take it home for the weekend? I want to write an introduction. I'm like – I'm never going to say no to that, because if he puts his name on something, it generally gets a lot more valuable.: Sure. And so he came back, and I remember on Monday morning he had an essay called "The Power of One." Hmm. And in real estate sales, your one thing is lead generation. Um, I would argue in real estate investing, you know the person who can source the most the best deal flow often finds the best deals. Lead generation is kind of tends to be the one thing for a lot of business ventures. And he wrote a really compelling essay about it. And I looked at him, and I've now been in publishing for more than 20 years. It's like, Gary, this is a book. And he goes, I thought that too. Yeah, And we then embarked on um, a journey where we spent about three months outlining the book, brought on two researchers, and we were really going to take our time. Because like you notice, this is our first non-real estate book. Mm -hmm. And we've built an incredible team at Keller Williams, I say we, you know, very uh, generously, including myself in that. Gary has built an amazing company, and we're we're very much known for our productivity, and that really comes from the leader. Gary is one of the most focused people I've ever had the privilege to work with, and he's incredibly efficient. And so, a lot of what's in the book started out as, well, here's how I've operated. Here are my hypotheses but I don't have authority in this space. Like Mm -hmm. in real estate, we always did research, but we could always start with his ideas and they were pretty well-founded and he had a lot of validity. But we ended up taking five years um, or close to it. I think it was four years and eight months to research and write this book because it is in a new territory for us. And we really wanted to vet all of the ideas and make sure that we were in the right spot. So it started with an essay, but that essay captured an idea that I thought was, This is not only a book that the world needs, but this is kind of Gary's book. It really embodies what I think his superpower is. Um, Of all the attributes you can apply to him, and he's an amazing entrepreneur. Um, His intelligence is great, his work ethic's great, his vision is great. The thing that's really distinguished him is his ability to identify the priority and give that priority more resources and time than anything else. Most people aren't able to say no enough to really say yes to something. Yeah. And so that's really a lot of what the book's about. And it really aligns with, like I said, what his true strengths are. So I felt like it was a book that was also in integrity with who he is and who we are.
0: So obviously Gary's and, and probably you to a certain extent have this superpower that we're talking about that you guys talk about with this really being able to identify that one thing. What do you think, like, you know, even really smart people? I mean, we've got a bunch of really smart people listening to the show, doctors, a bunch of software engineers, lawyers. What's the What's the big mistakes, do you think, that are most common when it comes to people setting goals or prioritizing work?
1: Well, there's a lot of them, right? There's a lot of really poor information out there, and there's a lot of really poor rituals people follow, like, you know, starting New Year's, you know, resolutions A lot of what we believe works doesn't. Um, I think 88% of all New Year's resolutions fail. And that's usually because they aren't um, specific enough. They are way too broad. So if you just broke it down into it's like, what's the problem with all of these goals? Most of the time, people have too many. Um, They're not clearly defined. They don't know why those goals are important. A lot of people's goals are really about bragging on Facebook. They're very aspirational. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I'll usually ask somebody, they'll say, Hey, I'm going to write a book, right? That I get that a lot. I'm an author. And I'm like, awesome. Tell me why you want to write it. And usually you now hear all the positive reasons like, Oh, I've got this gift I want to give to the world and blah, 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 blah. Right. Mm -hmm. And the question I Mm -hmm. ask often is, well, what will happen if you fail? And for most people, there is no consequence. And if there's no consequence, I usually think they need to do more work into why they're pursuing it Um, because really big goals like writing a book um, or building a business are going to require you to go through a lot of trials along the way. Um, They don't happen overnight. The subtitle for the book is extraordinary results, not average, not fast, not immediate, which is what so many people are seeking. And so I think a lot of people's goals are too many. They're not focused and they lack motivation. And then if you just add one more on top of it, Even if they had all three of those elements, they're not present in their lives. And I can't tell you how many people go to all this work every year to build a business plan for their business. And then it goes in a drawer and they don't look at it again. Yeah. And so do you have a system or a framework for always being challenged by your goals? I mean, if you looked at most Olympians, there's something, maybe it's a a picture of a gold medal that's on their mirror. They face their goals every single day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so
1: they're continually having contact and asking, am I making progress? Where am I based on where I thought I would be? And that sort of continual presence with the goal, being in contact with it, is a massive edge towards achieving it. Because it's really easy, especially when we're behind, to just shirk it off and not remind anybody that it was there, including ourselves. So those would be the big ones that I see that are prevalent in a lot of different systems.
0: Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you recently had... Dean Graziosi on the show and he likened this concept that you're talking about to you know having a you know flying around in a 747 without having a clear destination. <laughs> right? It's like you get right. ready, you got all this jet fuel and you take off, you're going 500 miles per hour and then you don't really know exactly where you want to land. And uh that's uh, that reminds me a lot of kind of what he was saying and the other thing that you were talking about is interesting he had another comment about this was the why question, right? So he talks about seven layers of why. Keep asking yourself why seven times to get to the bottom of the real reason. So all of that makes a lot of sense. Um, I
1: love that concept. He's probably trying to get to the heart of the matter. Exactly. I've found that you get there pretty quick, you know, like in real estate, you know, my wife's in sales. Well, what will happen if you, if you don't sell your home? Well, Junior can't get into the college we said he was getting into. Like, if there's a real yeah. consequence on the yeah. other side, they're usually motivated to do what it takes to make the outcome happen.
0: Yeah, see, there's a there's something else that you write about that resonated with me. It, you know, you talk about the myth of multitasking, which really made a lot of sense to me because, um, well, why don't you talk a little bit about it? Because a lot of people, including myself, have, have always said, you know, always say, you know, I'm a I'm a really good multitasker.
1: It's funny, you say a lot of the people on this call are physicians, right? Right. So, you know, if you're in surgery, you're not allowed to multitask, right? (laughs) You don't even pick up your own scalpel. Someone hands it to you. And I think that intuitively we understand as a society, if lives are at stake, multitasking is a bad idea, right? Don't look at your cell phone while you're driving. Um, I certainly don't want um, someone flying a 747 um, It's not on autopilot, like watching Netflix, right? Right. We want them focused because lives are at stake. And I think fundamentally, a lot of us don't treat our own most important work with that level of seriousness. Right. And I say most important work because you don't have to be a brain surgeon to to have someone's life at risk. If you're a poet, if you're a professional golfer, if you're, um, I don't know, an, an ear, nose and throat doctor, whatever that is. That's your life you're putting at risk when you multitask when you do it. And the research is super clear. Now, understand when we wrote this book, there was a cult of multitasking. You couldn't pick up a copy of Entrepreneur or Fast Company without there being some article about why multitasking was good and how to do it better. I tracked it over the course of that five years. And the first time I Googled it, there was like a million results for how to multitask. By the end, it was like quintuple that. You look up and you say, so what is this that people think they're doing? Because we intuitively thought like it's not a great idea. And if you look into the research, they don't actually call it multitasking. They just put multitasking in the title so people will read it. But scientists refer to this as switch tasking. And what's happening in your brain is you're bouncing between two activities. Your focus is bouncing back and forth so fast we don't really realize it, right? I can walk and talk on my phone at the same time. It's not a big deal, right? I'm bouncing back and forth and there's no real interference because they're both really simple tasks for me. The challenge here is, is that you're really going back and forth between the rules of the two games. And when you decide to switch your attention, that's instantaneous, you know, squirrel, your attention's there. And we've been evolved to adapt that way. If we couldn't notice distractions, We would not have survived, you know, the saber-toothed tiger stalking us through the savanna, right? We wouldn't have seen it. So we're very behaviorally evolved to notice distraction. Problem is, is when we switch from, say, writing a long email to a client to, hey, what do you want us to get for lunch? We're stepping out. The rules of those two games are different. And what happens in between is a time lag. When you switch, you actually aren't even aware of it. You lag your focus. So... The only time I really experience this consciously is when I'm, I'm reading a book or I'm watching a, a movie and someone walks into the room and they're like, Jay, Jay, and I know they're talking to me. The words are aimed at my ears and I'll usually shake my head and look up and say, I'm sorry, what were you saying? <clears throat> Have you ever experienced that, Buck? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That's that switching of the rules. Your brain had to go from what you were doing to the other thing. And researchers now believe that on average, the most workers who have to juggle phone calls and emails throughout the day, you know, as much as a quarter or more of their time is lost to this bouncing. And what would you do if you could get a quarter of your time back? So on a, on a very simple level, it's incredibly inefficient with our time. Yeah. On another level, and I could go into story after story, um, invariably people who are focused perform better than those who are, are not. If you multitask during a task, you're going to perform it poorly. There's a real degradation in skills. There is some research that suggests that 2% of the world are super taskers, and they can do some multitasking without the deficiency, but I'm never going to tell my son, hey, kid, you're one of the 2%, because chances are he's not, Right, right? Right. So. It costs you time. It costs you effectiveness. And for the people, the professionals that you speak to, um, it also costs them actual intelligence. There are um, people, there's a study that came out of uh, King College in London where they sampled three different IQ tests. On one, people just took it and they were focused. On another one, they took it and were interrupted with phone calls and emails they had to respond to. Right? Sounds like an average day for most of us. But if they'd only introduced text messaging, it would have been perfect, right? And then the third one, they sampled a bunch of people who had taken an IQ test while they were stoned on marijuana. And the reason anybody knows about this study, um, it's not the fact that the people who were focused on average scored 11 IQ points higher than the other two. It's the fact that the people who were stoned on average scored six IQ points higher than the people who were multitasking. Hmm. So it dumbs you down. So- Here's what I do. Like, I can actually, there's seven points of research. Those are the big three for me: time, effectiveness, right, and actual intelligence. When I'm doing my most important work, I'd like to do it smartly, right? I'd like to be smart at my job. Sure. So those are big three. I don't usually challenge people to not multitask ever. Um, there are engineers at Apple and Google and Microsoft that are being paid bajillions of dollars to distract us on a constant basis. The world is very much lined up for this. What I usually challenge people to do is when you've identified your number one priority, right? Maybe your number one priority with your kids is you get to read to them at bedtime, or maybe you drop them off at school. Maybe your number one priority with your spouse is when you come home, instead of transferring your mind from work to home, be present for that person, right? How was your day? And listen to the answer. Right? You know, like actually be present. So it doesn't even have to be a professional one thing. We can have a one thing in a lot of different areas. But when you're doing your most important work, don't multitask them. For me, it's my writing. When I write, I have to shut down the browsers that have all of my social media in them. I turn off my email. I try to create a little bunker so that at least for a couple of hours a day, I can be highly focused on what I need to be focused on. And I wasn't always really good at that. But the more you do it, the better you get. And when you start getting the result cycle, you can get kind of addicted to finding pockets where you're not distracted so that you can do these things that you actually value. So that's my lecture. I've been keynoting on you. I'm sorry I didn't give you much of a space to jump no, in. No, no, no. That's a big one for
0: people. <laughs> it It reminds me, though, of kind of what you're saying about – you know, just being in and being present, increasing that muscle, it reminds me a little bit of the practice of mindfulness meditation. Is there yep. any correlation between what you're talking about and mindfulness meditation?
1: <laughs> there is. Um, there's been some decent research that shows that people who suffer from attention deficit syndrome um, really benefit from practicing meditation. Yeah. Um, it can be very challenging for them in the beginning, but like any other muscle, it, it, it can be improved. I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert. I remember reading a couple of studies. We didn't end up writing about it, so I didn't go too deep into that. Um, it is super effective for lowering our stress levels. Sure. And I do think that it teaches the mind to empty itself, right? So I don't suffer from that. By the time I tried to meditate, um, I slipped into that pretty easily um at one point i meditated for 159 straight days and i wasn't seeing massive benefit really i fall okay. asleep when i go to bed i know how to flip that switch yeah and i know that's not the case for a lot of people my wife really benefits from meditation yeah i didn't so i didn't continue to do it i advocate for it i just don't practice it so i don't want to pretend like i do
0: sure sure so um, along that lines of, of just focusing on specific tasks, I think that you alluded to it before, but I think one of the problems that we generally have is high paid professionals, is business people, or or you know, whatever. I mean, everybody has this problem. Really, is saying no to things, and it reminds me, again, I'm going to just mention Dean Graziosi because that conversation keeps popping in my head. But you know, Dean's got this company that he um, He's grown substantially in the last few years from 10 million to 100 million. And one thing that stuck out to me was him saying that saying yes got him to 10 million and saying no got him to 100 million.
1: (laughs) Love that. Love that.
0: What do you think he means? Does that have something to do with what you're talking about here?
1: So when we wrote the book, um, towards the end of it, we wrote about there were four thieves of productivity. And first and foremost is the inability to say no. And so we looked into this, and it's one of Gary's superpowers. And so I would liken it to this. I think when you know what you've really said yes to, the no's actually come easy. But most people aren't really saying yes to much. So I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know the stats Mm -hmm. aren't awesome um, in terms of divorce rates. But for those of us who have been married, um, I would like to believe that all of us, that moment we said I do, we knew that that yes was in a higher territory, right? Yeah. That by saying yes to this person, we were in effect saying no to everybody else. Yeah. So there are some yeses that feel much more distinctly. There's a bigger commitment behind them. And I find that most people, they're not saying yes that way to their primary work. They're not saying yes that way often to their family and their kids. They're not saying yes that way to their health. And it goes back to, we talked about why, right? I yeah. think when you really understand the consequence of failure, and it truly is important to you, that yes becomes a little bit more vivid. And so one of the things we wrote in the book, and it was something that Gary had heard from someone else, so he, we didn't know who to attribute it to. But every yes has to be surrounded by a thousand no's. Huh. And he didn't really understand it in the beginning, mm-hmm. and today he thinks that's kind of an understatement. Yeah, But you see it in business all the time. When Steve Jobs um, came on board um, with Apple, you know, his second time around, they had, um, gosh, 350 products. I don't know if you remember them back then, but they made printers. Yeah. They were like playing the game that everybody else was, right? You know, you had all your brand on everything. And in just, I think, two years, they went from 350 products to 10 and that is when they actually started their amazing run of innovation. And he said in one of his um, keynotes you know, to investors, it was one of his annual conferences, that the, he was more proud, he was more proud of the things he had said no to than any of the products he'd said yes to, because that was the real test of being a great business person. So I think that we all need to be real cognizant. When we actually say mm-hmm. yes to something, Are we actually realizing what we're saying no to and get better at that understanding? We should have a lot fewer yeses in our lives. Then we would really be doing them and saying no to everything else.
0: A lot of times, um, you know, I feel like those things that, you know, that we're saying yes to, we feel like we're obligated to do so. Is that, again, just a matter of training yourself or, you know, again, is it just really drilling down on what it is that you want and then it just becomes more natural or that seems to me like a big problem, particularly for entrepreneurs, right? I mean, so I'm an entrepreneur and I know a lot of entrepreneurs are just like me. And I think what what happens a lot of times is, you know, you're doing one thing and then there's, you know, some kind of, like you said, you know, there's a separate product in the case of Steve Jobs, but there's something that you can jump into and it looks like a big shiny object. I mean, how do you not do that though? I mean is it just just being cognizant of it because I I've been guilty of it and Again it's yeah. about
1: knowing where you're going. Yeah. And when you really know where you're going it's easier to identify what is in fact a distraction. I think a lot of people entrepreneurs have an idea but it's pretty vague. Yeah. And so they don't even know when something shows up it's a distraction. One of the chapters that we had outlined but didn't include in the book and Maybe when we do a second edition someday, we'll have to add it because this comes up a lot, especially with entrepreneurs. Um, we had a chapter that was going to be called "The Low-Hanging Fruit Is a Lie." <laughs> yeah, right. And here's the thing: if um, I'm struggling to come up with a good example, but I'm just going to use um, an example of just traveling. I'm going to try drive from Miami to New York City. So, by and large, that is a journey that is due north, right? I'm going from Florida to New York. Well, if I am really clear that that's my destination and I have real motivation to get there as fast as I can, then a side trip to see Graceland and Memphis becomes identified clearly as a side trip. But if I generally am saying I'm going north, well, then I can veer off to the Grand Canyon and still be angling north, right? It's not going to get me. To new york very fast in fact it's going to double the distance but i can still justify by saying it's kind of on the path and i think for entrepreneurs we're making one product and we see that there's this new category that's shown up and it's very hot and it's very vogue and instead of focusing on our core mission the value proposition that we really got into the business for to begin with we run off because we go wow look we can make a lot of revenue and that's real yeah what we don't realize is that we may be actually moving us farther away from our ultimate destination. And that's usually where the biggest payday is too. Yeah. So I think it's very dangerous. Um, and it's really about plotting a better course. Like can we really look out, envision where we want to be someday, five years from now, work backwards from that and say, well, based on that, this is kind of what I think the path is. No, nobody has a crystal ball. It's never a perfect path but it does point a straight line between where we are today and where we want to be in the future. And that kind of clarity around the destination allows us to identify distractions more easily.
0: Yeah. I think even with your personal life, you can kind of get into those types of ambiguous destination situations, right? I mean, I mean, you talked about marriage, of course, but you know, we, we have this idea a lot. You hear this all the time, right? I, I just, uh, I want to escape the, Cubicle, or I want to escape the, you know, the golden handcuffs, and I want to retire. Well, what does retire even mean? And 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 why? And and why? Right? I mean, that's the other question. I've been lucky enough to not have to practice anymore, and that's something that I've realized is, you know, it's harder than it sounds, right? (laughs) Because because now I'm forty four. It's not like you know, I'm I'm and I'm sort of in the prime of what of my life to do things. It's like. I'm not gonna sit around and, you know, play golf. I don't even like golf. But if even if I did like golf, how long could you just play golf <laughs> and do nothing else? So if we've we all s- seen people, and I'm not gonna
1: put you in the stocks, yeah. but we've yeah. all seen people who were thriving professionals and when they retired, right? Yeah, yeah. they started slipping. And yeah. I know that in the gym, my trainer says, you know, you're either growing Stronger, or you're growing weaker. There is no staying in the same place. Right. And I think that when we are striving for something, we tend to grow. And there's a lot of research that says progress towards the destination is the thing that makes us happiest. Yeah. It even makes us happier than getting there. Mm-hmm. So having a goal, and and some of the healthiest retired people are those who have ambitious hobbies, right? And they are striving you know, it's not just playing golf with their buddies. They're actually trying to become a scratch golfer or something. Right. Yeah. So there are healthy ways to retire. I love what I do. Right. Um, I remember reading an essay um, by T. Corgeson Doyle. Um, boy, I can't remember, remember his name. This one, And he pointed to a coffin and said, that's my retirement. Yeah. Like, he just fully <laughs> expected to write until the day he died. Like, why yeah. would I quit? It brings me joy um we all hope to be so lucky i mean work some days is work but hopefully there's also fulfillment we get from it um and if there's not then that is time to escape that cubicle but find another one that makes you happy
0: yeah that's right and 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 what i found actually is a corollary to what i said before was that you know ultimately this podcast and creating a community and writing and all this um i just created another and i wouldn't call it a job because i don't have a boss or anything or but this became Uh, this ultimately just replaced what I was doing before. And arguably I'm probably, I might be busier now, but I enjoy doing it. So to me in your personal life, retirement is really the way I think about retirement is actually being able to live out your mission in life, right? Your mission. And ultimately that is just what you enjoy doing, what you would be doing if no one was paying you anyway. And you know, you get to do it. Right. That, that that's, that's like a, an admirable goal.
1: Well, we, in the millionaire real estate agent and the the epigraph of that book, we define for us, financial wealth was having the un un unearned income, right. To fulfill your life mission. Right. And that meant you don't have to do other things. Right. And you can now fulfill your mission. The problem for most people is they don't know what their life mission is and it doesn't have to be save the whales. Right. It can just be help people. It can be make a better widget. I don't care. It's whatever fulfills you. It's not competitive. It's not about getting something tattooed across your back. It's pretty simple. Um, What brings joy and fulfillment to us? Happiness is very fleeting. Fulfillment tends to last. We feel fulfilled when we're making a difference um, on any level. One of the things that you said, and this is, um, you know, I've spent, gosh, the last 17 years, you know, studying entrepreneurs. You asked, do I actually have a job? And on page 114 of the book, and that's the only page I have memorized. We talk about the seven areas of the of the seven areas of your life where you can apply the one thing. And the one that causes great confusion is what's your one thing for your job and what's the one thing for your business. And we were talking to entrepreneurs. You know, Gary owns Keller Williams, right. largest real estate company in the world, and that business has a one thing. But he also has a job in that business, and the clearer he is about his role, the better everything works, right? The thing is when you're an independent contractor, right in the, the Richard, the Robert Kiyosaki framework, which I love, you know, cash flow quadrant, when you are self-employed, which means you're a business of one, you know, you often have multiple roles. If you don't have a janitor at the end of the day, you are the janitor, you're mopping the floors. You just have to know the priority of those roles and you need to be first the CEO and drive the business. Then you may have to be the practitioner and deliver the value proposition. Then you may have to, after hours, be the bookkeeper and balance the books. Yeah. Right. And as you become successful, right, I heard that you have an audio guide listening into this, right? You have contractors or employees who fulfill some of those roles. So I would argue that in every business, even a business of one, you have a job. Mm -hmm. Um, What's great about in business when you own it, you get to pick the job. Yeah, that's right.
0: That's right. That's great. Um anyway, the most recent book is The One Thing, as we've been talking about here, and it's uh, Jay Papasan, who's co-authored that book with Gary Keller. How do we keep up with what you're doing, uh, Jay? I mean, you, you've got some other books coming up by here. Uh, tell us a little bit about how we can kind of follow you and your work.
1: Um, sure. If people go to theonething.com, and that's with the number one, um, if you just type the one thing into Google, you'll find us. Um, we have all of our programs there. We have some free courses, online courses that people can take. Obviously, if people want to read the book, I'd be thrilled. But we have a lot of free products there as well um, on how to set better goals, how to stay in touch with them. We have a system called the 411. All those resources are free on the site. So I would go there. And obviously, my name, Jay Papazan. Um, I'm on the site. It's pretty. I'm pretty Googleable. Google-able that's a <laughs> verb. Yeah. Um, because of my weird last name. And I do manage my own social sites. So if people wanted to reach out on LinkedIn, um, Facebook, or Instagram, I'm not fast to respond on those platforms because that's not one of my primary jobs. It's something I delegate pretty far down the line. So I check those buckets maybe once every two weeks. But I do try to respond as timely as I can to direct questions from readers. We're also going to put a
0: link to that book uh, in the resources section on wealthformula.com. Jay, I want to thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me. It was fun chatting with you.
0: We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over 3 and a half years. These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, it's nice once in a while, don't you think, to step outside of ourselves and, um, You know, really look into what we can do better. And part of the problem is that sometimes it's hard to find the time. That's really the paradox for busy professionals, right? I want to figure out how to be more productive and use my time better, but I don't really have time to do that. (laughs) So what do you do? Well, anyway, a good place to start would be simply to read this book, The One Thing. And uh, I should point out, uh, Phil, make sure this is on the resources section the one thing so that you can just go to wealthformula.com, check out the resources section and click on it, buy it. It's a really good book and uh, one of the best ones I read last year. So I also want to remind you uh, that as of today, at least that uh, we have an active raise for this incredible self-storage opportunity uh, that we have through investor club. It is still open and you can watch the webinar. Just go to wealthformula.com in the opportunities section and uh click on the webinar and watch it. Of course, this is a regulation D506c offering, which means it's open only to accredited investors. You got to get verified as an accredited investor, which we can do for you, of course. But even if you're not one, it's pretty educational. Check it out. It is a um, you know, this is a I've been talking about this idea of infinite return on investment after refinancing. And this uh, is really a perfect example of that. So even if you can't invest in it, it might be worth to watch the webinar on WealthFormula.com. Go to the opportunities, uh, investing opportunities section and check that out. And also, again, remember, I want to hear from you. So literally, you know, just go to WealthFormula.com, go on a SpeakPipe, and start asking some questions that we can use for our next Ask Buck show And uh, in doing so, you will become immortalized in Wealth Formula archives along with an iTunes, you know, for for generations ahead to listen to. Anyway, that's all I have for this week. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast, signing off.
1: Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always consult your own financial team before making any investment see you next time
0: buck joffrey here from Sapio with buck joffrey aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years it's already being done in lab animals so it's just a matter of time our challenge to be healthy enough for when that time comes as a former scientist and surgeon myself my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.